All right. Um, good to be here. Always is. Always enjoy being here. Um, I Sunday, um, Pastor Yoder asked me if I would, uh, I don't know, what did you call that? What did you say? If I pull out something. Sugar stick. Okay. I've never heard of sugar <laughs> stick before in that sense. But if I had a sugar stick and, and once I figured out what he's talking about, I said, no, I really don't. Um, I don't have anything with me, and I don't have anything like right on the top of my head that I feel like I could just do without a notes. And, and so uh, he's, but he'd asked if I would do something, maybe on faithfulness, and in light of grandma's, I'm going to call her grandma, is that okay? Because in our house, we call her grandma, because if I say mom, everybody thinks I'm talking about my wife. She doesn't <laughs> like it when I say mom. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, so uh, he asked if I would do something on faithfulness, maybe something on grandma, and I thought, well, those two subjects go together really well. <laughs> And then I thought, um, it wasn't until like 6 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, that um, it dawned on me that our son Andrew and actually some other family members were, were still coming up. And I could call them and ask them to bring a set of notes. And so that's what I did. And uh, so I don't have to, uh, what, fly by the seat of my pants? Is it okay to use that expression <laughs> tonight here as I share some things with you? So, um, I uh, wasn't long ago, I've been going through the book of Philippians in, in our church, and, um, and I thought of a, a message that I thought, you know, this will work really well um, for, for what we want to accomplish here tonight. And um, so, th this is a message that it took me two weeks to preach in my church, so I'm not going to keep you that long here tonight, but it is always a little bit of a trick to, you know, get that down to, to the allotted time here tonight. So bear with me if I stumble around a little bit trying to figure out what to say and what not to from uh, my selection of Scripture here. Philippians chapter 4 is where we will uh, look, verses 10 through 19, but we're not going to cover all those verses. We just won't get that far. In fact, I, I was looking at the passage again this afternoon, and I thought, you know, I really could have gone back to verse 8 even for this message. Uh, the way I divided it out, it worked out to kind of have a, a message in, in verses 10 through 19 of chapter 4 about contentment. And I thought, God, looking at this back at verse 8 here in Philippians 4, where it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, good report, uh, anything, if there be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. And uh, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And I thought, well, that's, that's really about contentment, too. I, I was thinking about how um, when you turn on the news, you don't get any of these things, do you? <laughs> uh, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't watch the news, but I'm telling you, if, I, I have found that I watch the news a little less, or I'm very selective about where I, where I watch the news or what I see. Or what I, because I'm telling you what, it is not encouraging. But we're grateful that we know God's in charge. And that's part of what I want to talk about tonight in regard to contentment, because we can trust the providence of God. We're going to see that here in a moment. But um, let me just ask you this, um, and you can give me some feedback here. We won't have a discussion, but you can just give me an answer. What, what, what do we often say is the theme of Philippians? Joy, right? Yeah. And that's not a wrong answer. That's an absolutely good answer. Uh, there, is, uh, there is just boatloads of joy in the book of Philippians. And, of course, it's remarkable that there's that much joy 
and I know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but, but, but the Paul, the human author, was going through very, very troubling circumstances at the time when he wrote this. And yet he was able to just infuse this book with joy. And, and uh, so there's, that's not a wrong answer at all. And so I'm not arguing with that. But I want us to look at it a little bit different angle here tonight, because I would argue as well that perhaps there's an even deeper, more bedrock theme than joy. I, I would argue that perhaps joy though it's, it's, there's so much of it there, is actually a byproduct of something else. And I think that that something else is humility. I, I think we could argue that perhaps the theme of Philippians is humility, and joy is a byproduct of that humility. And maybe you'll catch a glimpse of that even in this portion that we're looking at um, here um, this evening. Um, but like, so like joy, I, th I think contentment is is um, a byproduct of humility. I think joy is, I think humility is. I think contentment is, or excuse me, not humility. <laughs> joy is, and I think contentment is, a byproduct of humility. And uh, so, there's a Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. He defined contentment the following way. He said, and I quote, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. But that's a really good definition. And yet, people don't, people are, again, I think it's like joy. People are constantly in pursuit of joy. They're constantly, well, you might say they're in pursuit of contentment. <laughs> they may not necessarily recognize it as that, but they want some kind of satisfaction, some kind of joy, some kind of contentment. And they're not finding it, and they're not humble, okay? They're, they're finding it through all sorts of other means or attempting to find it through all sorts of other means, but not humility. In fact, it's very self-centered pursuits of joy and contentment. We seek to find it in possessions, perhaps in career, um, money, position, perhaps prestige. And, and, and though these things may not necessarily be bad and wrong in themselves, in fact, sometimes we'll call those things a blessing. My, a job is a blessing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have a job. It's wonderful to have a career. But if you're looking for your contentment in that, I'm sorry. If, it, you, if you have it for a moment, it won't last, okay? It, it just won't last. It's not the source of contentment or joy, all right? Now, not only does the Bible identify contentment as a virtue to be sought after, I, I, I really see it in Scripture oftentimes as a command to be obeyed. It's really something that we choose, okay? And it's something that we can, we can actually achieve by God's grace as we purpose to be content. We can learn to be content. Isn't that what Paul's going to say here in a moment? You know the passage of Scripture, right? He's going to say he's learned to be content. We'll read it here in a moment. Um, so it's a command to be obeyed. I think of John the Baptist. He, he was preaching repentance. When asked by some soldiers what they should do, he responded, be content with your wages. Paul admonished Timothy, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. That's a choice you can make, Timothy. You got food, you got clothing, be content. The writer of Hebrews wrote, let your conversation, your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. That's a command given there. And we know Paul himself 
certainly learn to find contentment. And uh, I've said that twice now. <laughs> okay, I haven't read the scripture yet, but he learned contentment. He found it. And he found it in the face of difficult circumstances. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, we read, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. It's hard enough thing to read. I, I can't imagine writing that down and actually meaning it. <laughs> I, I can't imagine it. Okay, because of the Holy Spirit. But naturally, we don't think that way, do we? That's not naturally the way we think. I just love infirmities. Oh, I just take joy. I, I take pleasure in infirmities. No, not, not generally, right? With the Holy Spirit's help, when we understand what God wants to do with infirmities, we can actually have, we can actually have some joy from it and realize joy from it, contentment, a settled kind of peace, and just knowing that God has good things in store and good things in mind. And that's what Paul learned. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I think Paul is saying there, you know what? I have strength when I'm humble. When I realize that there is no strength in myself, when I realize that I'm just a weak, weak person, that's when I actually have the most strength because it's not mine, it's God's strength, the strength of Christ. And it's a result of humility. Recognizing my own weakness. So yes, he could do this. He could have this attitude. He could have this understanding because he recognized how trials produce godliness. And godliness with contentment is great gain. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. So now Paul gives really a testimony concerning his own contentment here in Philippians 4. And it was instructive to the Philippians and it's instructive to you and I as well. So as I've already said, just as joy is a byproduct of humility, I think so is contentment. So God wants you to humble yourself into a life of contentment. God wants you to humble yourself into a life of contentment. And how can this happen? Well, I think we experience contentment as we humble ourselves in four ways, and we're only going to look at two of them. And even those probably a little bit briefly here tonight. So let's look at verse 10. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. All right, so let's look first of all at this, the way that we can humble ourselves into a life of contentment. First of all, learn to depend on God's providence. I already alluded to that a moment ago and how we see it here. Because a large part of humility and thus contentment is recognizing one's utter dependence upon God's providence. Learn to depend on God's providence. So look at God's providence here at work. God's providence says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care for me hath flourished again. This is really about God's providence. Because he says in the latter part of that verse, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So, first of all, God's providence had opened a door of opportunity. Here in the first part of verse 10. 
God's providence had opened up a door of opportunity. It's an opportunity that they had lacked, but now the door of opportunity was open again. Epaphroditus was able to go to Rome and with, and, and, and with a generous gift from the Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 18 says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Paul rejoiced in the Lord. His rejoicing here is in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. He recognizes who's behind all this. This opportunity, this gift that came from them at the hands of Epaphroditus. He's trusting God's providence. He says, I rejoice in the Lord knowing that ultimately all good things come from him. Now, of course, he was grateful for the way the gift met needs. I, I, I believe that. But his rejoicing was more over the demonstration of love that the gift represented represented. Finally, at last, he says, their care had flourished again. The word translated flourished here is a horticultural term. Earlier this year, we were, I was telling my wife about this word because it was back when I was actually preaching through this. And, and we were sitting on our deck and, and looking at some hanging plants that when we brought home were really, really beautiful, full of bloom. Due to various factors, which probably included not getting enough water, they, they didn't look very good for a while. But then we began to really pay attention to them and doctor them and, and give them the, the water and what they needed. And they, you could just see that it was full of buds, just about ready to just burst forth again. This plant was just about ready to flourish once again, as it had when we brought it home. And that, that was a good illustration of this word. It's what it's talking about. It's a horticultural term. And he's saying, now you folks, your opportunity, this opportunity has come to you again, and your, your generosity is just flourishing. Your love is just spilling over, expressed through this gift. So this generosity, this affection that the Philippians had for Paul had just laid dormant for a while, but now it was blooming again. But now to, miss, to, to, to avoid any misunderstanding, Paul adds, wherein ye were also careful. So he's saying, it's not that, I recognize it's not that you didn't care. It's not that you just quit loving me. It's not that you're, that, that, it's just that you didn't have the opportunity to show it, to demonstrate it. You lacked opportunity. Paul was confident that they cared before, but just didn't have that opportunity to show it. It's kind of like my wife. I know that she is very, very confident that I love her. But she sure likes it when I tell her so. In fact, she even likes it more. Her, her love language, are you guys into love languages? You talk about that sometimes. Her love language is, is uh, acts of service. And so, so if I really want to show her I love her, I don't just tell her I love her. I make the bed or do something <laughs> that, that just really shows her. Um, that's, that's, that's just her love language. And um, so, uh, you know, I think this is, this is what, you know, so I, I know you love me. But, wow, this, this, this generous gift you gave just shows it's flourishing again. And I, I see it firsthand and I really get a... Uh, an understanding of it again. So why had they lacked opportunity to this point? Well, that's all about God's providence too, right? God's providence had closed the doors of opportunity, and you really see that in the latter part of verse 10. Um, ye also care, you were careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Now, I, mean, I suppose uh, we could, sometimes, sometimes the problem isn't that, that, that we don't have the opportunity, we don't take the opportunity. But that was not the case with these folks. Paul's making that very clear. 
They just didn't have the opportunity. So we have to recognize that as the hand of God. And we don't know what it was. They don't say, we're not told here exactly what it was that was keeping them from being able to express their love for Paul through uh, various means, including giving. We're not told. But we know from chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, that the Philippians had sent financial support to Paul when he left Philippi and went to the cities of Thessalonica and then on to Berea. And then again, when he proceeded to the region of Achaia and ministered in the cities of Athens and Corinth, he had given to them. In fact, let me read those verses because it just demonstrates the generosity of the Philippians. It says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So, but after that, for whatever reason, we're not told, the Philippians lacked opportunity to give financial support to Paul. Maybe that their own poverty got to the point where they just couldn't. It could be some other logistical issues of something, or just unable to get to locate or contact Paul or whatever the case might be. But ultimately, it was a matter of divine providence. God had shut the door of opportunity for them. Now, Paul's, Paul's grateful heart and gracious attitude are indicators of his confidence in the providence of God. He was not in a panic mode over them. All this time when they lacked opportunity, Paul wasn't wringing his hands wondering where in the world his next meal was going to come from. He wasn't concerned about any outstanding bills at the tent fabric supply store or whatever. He did not manipulate people or take matters into his own hands. That's what we do sometimes, isn't it, when we don't know, when we're not trusting God. We we'll try to manipulate situations or people. Paul's not doing that. He simply trusted God to meet needs in due time. He knew that his circumstances were in the hands of a sovereign God. And he was confident. That all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. You know, there are, there are other examples in Scripture of godly people who trusted in the providential hand of God. Solomon acknowledged God's providence in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. We read, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. It was God's providence that elevated Joseph to a high position in Egypt in order to preserve his people. Genesis 50, verse 20. Remember Joseph's dialogue with his brothers? He said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. It was God's providence that put Esther in a position to save Israel. Read about it in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Won't take the time to, to read all these. It's when we humble ourselves and recognize that there is a loving God who is in control that we can experience peace and content. But it takes, takes humility, doesn't it? Because our, our tendency is to think about us and to think about our plight and to worry and add worry to worry about how our needs are going to be met, how our problems are going to be solved, what we're going to do if this and that and the other 
And many of the things we worry about never actually end up happening. <laughs> I, I, re I remember um, years ago, my brother and sister-in-law had a poster on their refrigerator. And, and I don't even remember what the picture was, but the saying on it was, don't tell me worrying doesn't help. The things I worry about never happen. <laughs> and sometimes that's the way it is with us. We, we waste our time worrying about things that never happen anyway. But even if they do, God will be right there with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And we trust his providence and trust his loving hand. He's our heavenly father, our Abba. Well, we can be content in whatever state we're in, right? And that, that, that moves me to my, my next point here in verses 11 and 12, and, and it's closely tied to what we've already talked about. But the second point here is that we need to learn to live above circumstances, and that's really kind of what we've been talking about. Learn to live above circumstances. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The context here is, is clearly financial. Okay? It's, it's material thing. But I think that... that, that Paul's contentment wasn't just centered in those things. I think, I think it went, it's, it's a much broader application than just financial stuff. In fact, think about what, dealt, what Paul dealt with in terms of persecution. It didn't take long after Paul's conversion for him to start experiencing persecution for his proclamation of Christ. There's a, there's a lot of passages of Scripture here. I, I hate not to read them. I think I will trust that will be friendly to me here. But um, in Acts chapter 9, verses 22 to 25, and you can turn there if you want, but in fact, if you want to turn to Acts, we're going to be, I'm going to read several passages from there so it won't be hard for you to, to get to them quickly. But starting in Acts chapter 9, it says, but Saul increased. This is still Saul. Okay, so this is fairly early on, all right? Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Remember that being just one of, the, one of my favorite Bible stories when I was just a kid. Really, really neat. Thinking about them. Uh, lowering Paul down in that basket. But it was this early on in his life. He's just beginning to preach Christ, and the Jews already want to kill him. On his first missionary journey, he experienced hostility that nearly cost him his life. Chapter 14 of Acts and verse 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Here's Paul, stoned and left for dead. Incredible persecution he's going through. No doubt many of the Philippians remembered what happened to him and Silas at Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 24, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them, and when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And you know the rest of the story. 
Did, do you see, you know the story. Was there any level of contentment and peace on the part of Peter? Or excuse me, of Paul at that time? Yeah, we know there was. In spite of those circumstances. From Philippi, Paul went to Thessalonica, where things didn't get much better. You jump down to chapter 17. Let me read verses 5 to 10. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. I've always just loved that description. <laughs> lewd fellows of the baser sort. And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I, I would just love it if the church today would gain that reputation as, as, a, as a, a church that turned the world upside down. And these whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So you see the hostility within which they ministered. Credible things that the Apostle Paul endured and dealt with from the very early onset of his ministry on to his death. And we could just go on and on and give more details about that. But Paul pretty well sums up the difficulties he faced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 33. I won't read quite that far, but starting in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, it says, Are they ministers of Christ? Paul's defending himself here. He doesn't do that, and you can tell when he does it, he doesn't like to do it. But uh, in the face of false teachers who were gaining a reputation at the expense of Paul's reputation, Paul needed to clarify some things about himself and about false teachers. And he said, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. That's, that's a summary, but it's a loaded summary of all that Paul had endured. And I'm going to argue that he learned to live above circumstance. He was content and actually experienced a deep-rooted, a deep-seated joy because he trusted his heavenly Father. And he was humble and willing to submit himself to whatever the Father allowed in his life. Certainly, and we get back to the, the specifics of our passage here, he had to deal with times of poverty. I know how to be abased. I am instructed to be hungry, to, to suffer need. He clearly had experienced his share of poverty. He knew what it was like to have to get by 
with meager material things. But on the flip side of that, he had to deal with times of plenty. You find that interesting, that he kind of puts the two on the same level. I had to learn to endure poverty. I had to learn to deal, to deal with prosperity. Most of us would say, well, I'd like to try that. <laughs> you know, I, may, I can't, certainly, surely it can't be as hard as, as dealing with poverty. Well, I think it is. I think, I think, and I think that's demonstrated by the number of people who have a great deal of wealth, and it is obvious that it doesn't give them any contentment or joy. In fact, people will just ruin their lives through drugs or alcohol or even suicide, even though they have everything they ever dreamed of getting on this earth. But Paul says, I know how to abound. I am instructed to be full, to abound. So Paul had also gone through times of plenty. There were times when God graciously granted him more than he needed. So one has to learn to deal with plenty just as they have to learn to deal with poverty. You know what? You, you don't learn to rise above your circumstances by merely reading a how-to book. These are lessons learned by experience. Now, I'm not suggesting, that, not belittling the value of this book, the Word of God, to show us how to deal and to rise above our circumstances. But it's through, it's through the trials of life, it's through the challenges, it's through just experience that we become a people that can learn to rise above our circumstances. Obviously, all of that with, with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God working through all of that in our lives. The repetition of the phrase here, I know both how and I know how. There's a repetition of those phrases. I know how. I know both how. I know how. And verse 12 indicates that he had learned by experience and his spiritual maturity to live above his circumstances and maintain contentment. Poverty certainly can get our focus off of our Lord and our provider. And it can turn it onto what we don't have. Our focus can be on the things we don't have. Instead of being grateful for what we have, we get bitter over what we don't have. Instead of thanking God for what little we have, we get our focus on others and we see that they have more and we get envious, covetous. We feel we deserve better. And with these prideful attitudes, we will never live in contentment. You know, I, was, I, I really think about I don't know how you put it in a nutshell what the real problem is with our world, other than the fact that they're unbelievers. I mean, you could, you could certainly say that. But when I think about what characterizes unbelievers, I, I, I really think that a lot of the, 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 such a self-centeredness there and lack of contentment and lack of gratefulness, even in a nation that we live in where there is so, so much we're a nation of ungrateful people. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's got a cause, and everybody's ripped off one way or another. And I, and I find it interesting, you go to Romans chapter 1, and you, you look at the progression. You, you look at where Romans 1 ends, right? Where God gave them up. You, you trace all that back towards verse 18, 
And what do you find at the very beginning? They were ungrateful. And it's, it's a nation. We look at our nation now, and you, I, feel, I feel like God has given us up. Not, not us personally as believers, okay? <laughs> but the unbelief, I, I, just, I just think, I think man, when I, when I read Romans 1 now, I see our nation. And I think about all the ungratefulness, unthankfulness. Don't realize how good we have it. Paul had learned to be content with little in poverty. But you know, our affluence can mess with our focus as well. We can use our wealth strictly for selfish purposes. We can get consumed with temporary pleasures that wealth affords. We can get consumed with the protection and maintenance of our possession. And fearful that we'll lose them. We can get miserly and hoard wealth as if our dependence is on our riches. We're gravely warned against such misplaced dependence in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. See that pride again versus humility? Nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Surely the current instability of our, in our nation, not only financially, but just in every way, should help us to see that, you know what, we should never trust in anything on this earth. You see the volatility of the stock market. You see how a virus can come and just totally, uh, <laughs> you know, affect a, an economy. Um, and I think we can be really grateful that it hasn't affected a world. And, and you think when you, I don't mean to, I don't mean to offend anybody here. But honestly, if you have a different opinion than me, that's okay. But but honestly, I don't I don't think this virus is as bad as what it's been made out. And the fact is, what what if, what if something is really bad sometime? <laughs> what how's this nation going to respond? So wow, to to trust in anything here is just foolish. But you know, for the world, there's nothing more important, nothing more worrisome than their financial status. There's no way one can be content if they've not learned how to abound. So let's learn to live above our circumstances. And I want to I take all that now and make a little bit of application and embarrass Grandma a little bit, all right? I was just thinking about, that. i got to do my math right here. 33 years? 34 years? I think, yeah, it would be 34 years ago. Um, 34 years ago, January, when I first stepped into this church, not this building, but this church. And uh, uh, not very many people in this room today were there then, <laughs> okay? But a few. Um, and it was right about that time when, when I first started attending Bible Baptist Church that Coral's dad was diagnosed with diabetes. And I remember his testimony about the challenge that it was to lose one's health. And uh, that was at the very beginning. And I just, I, I've watched mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, <laughs> Uh, through all these years then, from that very early moment when I just met them and he was diagnosed with diabetes, I watched them 
deal with that difficulty and have it just get increasingly worse and worse and worse and worse to the point of that death. It was uh, when about the time Coral and I were married, or just shortly after we were married, that it was discovered that Tom and Todd, grandchildren, had spinal muscular atrophy, would never walk. And at that time, they said that their life expectancy wouldn't be any, even <laughs> as long as what they've lived. And I saw them respond to that. I saw them shed a lot of tears, but I saw them trust the Lord. Nobody ever wants to lose a child. You always want to die before your children do. But I watched them lose Crystal. Watched the heartache. But watched them trust the Lord. And watched them remain faithful. And Through the years, ups and downs of church ministry, pastors come, pastors go, ups, downs, Rambo's still here. She's not alone, there's a few others that I still remember back in those days when I first attended. Then there was dad's death. I could interject here. I don't remember how many times I heard them say, maybe both of them. Well, in the Lord's hands. There's a lot of people give lip service to that. But I've seen them demonstrate with their lives. Grandma with her life. But no, it's truly in the Lord's hands. Dad's death was difficult. Naturally, it still is. Saw so a lot of sorrow. A lot of tears, a lot of heartbreak, and there would have been something wrong with Grandma if there hadn't been. <laughs> but she is bound and determined by God's grace not to let sorrow turn into self-pity. Still faithfully serving, looking how she can impact and touch the lives of others. Grateful for that example. Grateful for that example of faithfulness. We need more of it. But see, see how it's related to contentment? It's learning in whatever state I am there with to be content. To go through the ups and the downs. Plenty in the black. <laughs> um, hard times, good times. And then even keel. Just trusting the Lord's providence. Trusting his provision. Living above circumstances. God's always in control. God's always there to love us, take care of us. Got a plan, he's got a purpose. It's going to work out together for good. So that's what I have to share with you tonight. Let's take a moment and pray. Shall we? Father, thank you.